You know, David saw a problem and he recognized the problem. He felt the problem and he took seriously the agreements that Israel had before God and the Gibeonites. What am I talking about? Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. My name is Rod Hembry. And I'm Jess. And this is Bible Discovery TV. We are discovering the Bible from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. We do that every year. This is our 33rd year. And 2 Samuel 21 is fascinating. I'll tell you, we're going to read that and study it in about five minutes time. It's a good one. But in about 20 minutes time, Corey is here with Ryan. Corey. So I'm going to be taking a look at the history and the archaeology of this ancient city of Gibeon. Ryan. Well, since my study yesterday was all about gates, today I'm going to be talking about ancient locks and keys and how the key became an emblem of honor and authority. Very good. Janice. Covenants and oaths. Coming up in 25 minutes. That's good. Take out your Bible and let's listen to what God is saying. Second Samuel 21, 1 through 9. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David inquired of the Lord. And the Lord answered, It is because of Saul and his bloodthirsty house, because he killed the Gibeonites. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. The children of Israel had sworn protection to them, but Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the children of Israel and Judah. Therefore David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? And with what shall I make atonement, that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord? And the Gibeonites said to him, We will have no silver or gold from Saul or from his house, nor shall you kill any man in Israel for us. So he said, Whatever you say, I will do for you. Then they answered the king, As for the man who consumed us and plotted against us, that we should be destroyed from remaining in any of the territories of Israel, let seven men of his descendants be delivered to us, and we will hang them before the Lord in Gibeah of Saul, whom the Lord chose. And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the Lord's oath that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. So the king took Armani and Mephibosheth, the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, whom she bore to Saul, and the five sons of Michael, the daughter of Saul, whom she brought up for Adriel, the son of Barzillai the Maholathite. And he delivered them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the hill before the Lord. So they fell, all seven together, and were put to death in the days of harvest, in the first days, in the beginning of barley harvest. Second Samuel chapter 21, verses 1 through 9. Second Samuel 20. 21 and 22, as we continue reading through the Bible, that's what we go into. And this is fascinating. God, you know, he expected the Israelites to take their covenants 
seriously. I mean, it's a covenant. He expected them to be like him. Now, the book of Joshua tells us that the Israelites, they were tricked into making a covenant with the Gibeonites and that Joshua upheld the covenant anyway. The Israelites had taken an oath to protect Gibeon as their own, and they honored that oath. When Saul was king, however, he ignored this covenant and killed many of them. The Gibeonites were too weak to defend themselves or to secure justice for themselves. But God saw the injustice and did something about it. He had thrust the land into famine. The people were guilty, so the land would not produce for them. Now, after Saul's death, the famine continues, which prompts David to ask God for clarity. So God told David about the injustice, and it was perpetrated by the king, and about the blood guilt and the remaining in the land. Now, God knows the hearts of men. God sees the actions of us all, and his memory is perfect. God will always bring justice, always. And let me tell you something, there's a time when we, we're living in now, doesn't seem to be much justice in this world. Well, don't worry, God has it under control. There will be justice, beloved. And we have to pray and ask God to come back quickly for that justice. This is the Bible guide. Take your Bible guide, turn to today's page. God remembers is what our title is, 2 Samuel 21. And uh, you can get the Bible guide by writing to us or calling us, or you can go to BibleDiscoveryTV.com. And when you go there, click on it. And I want to say that it'll take you to the page where you can make a donation. Thank you so much for making that donation. You know, these are times, it's very difficult for us in these times. And these are times when we pray to God, help us, Lord. And so, Father, in Jesus' name, thank you for the people who have made their pledges and made their commitments and help them, Lord. Help others to join us in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, let's pray for this today. Father, help us. God remembers and without errors like we have. You know, God doesn't get dementia, Lord. Lord, you don't get lack of memory. You understand everything perfectly. So help us, Father, in Jesus' name. And we said together, amen. Remember that, because that's important. God knows everything. So, uh, you know, we have mistakes we've made and things have happened, but time kind of puts, well, not time. Time to God is, there's no time. So it's just like things happen. We got to deal with it all and ask Jesus to help us. All right, so 2 Samuel 21, 1 to 2. This is interesting. Now, there was a famine in the days of David for three years. Year after year, I mean, this famine was terrible. And David inquired of the Lord. And the Lord answered, It is because of Saul and his bloodthirsty house, because he killed the Gibeonites. So the king called to the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now, the Gibeonites were not the, of the children of Israel but of the remnant of the Amorites and the children of Israel had sworn protection to them. But Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the children of Israel and Judah. Now this is important. God looked upon the covenant made between Israel and the Gibeonites seriously. They made a covenant. See, the Lord has made a covenant with us and we need to take it seriously. David knew there was a problem, beloved. And so David simply said, Lord, what is the problem? And God answered him. God spoke to him and said, it's the Gibeonites. See, God knew because 
Time doesn't get old with God. With God, he's outside of time. He sees everything as it happened. And that's why it says, when, you, when the Bible says, confess your faults, he says, talk to God. That's important. Now, there recently in Africa and Kenya, there was a leader of the government who said, we're taking one day because of the famine and we're going to pray about this. You know, God hears and answers prayer, beloved. We need to pray about the things that are going wrong in our countries. We need to pray about the things that are happening. We have to come back to God. All right. 2 Samuel 21, verse 3. Therefore, David said to the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? And with what shall I make atonement that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord? And the Gibeonites said to him, we will have no silver or gold. Don't want money from Saul or from his house, nor shall you kill any man in Israel for us. So he said, well, whatever you say, I will do, David said. Verse 5, then they answered the king, as for the man who consumed us and plotted against us, that we should be destroyed from, the, from remaining in any of the territories of Israel. Let seven men of his descendants be delivered to us, and we will hang them before the Lord in Gibeah of Saul, whom the Lord chose. And you know what the king said? I will give them. Oh, this is incredible. Look at this. To make atonement for violence, David gave the Gibeonites their request. Jesus has paid the cost of our sins, beloved, but we need to make right our violations with others whenever possible. And there are times when that's not always possible. But we need to say, okay, Lord, if this happened, I need to confess this to you and help me to do the right thing. Boy, that repentance idea is so good. That's really what started the revival in Kentucky. The idea of repentance, coming back and saying, no, Lord, we're wrong. I've got many things wrong. Help me today. There's so much power in repenting and confessing to the Lord. That's exactly what God wanted. That's exactly what God was trying to tell Adam at the beginning of time when he said, who told you you were naked? Where have you been? He's asking questions, not because he doesn't know, but because he wants Adam to tell him. Very important. Repentance is a big part of, or confession is a big part of repentance. All right, 2 Samuel 21, verse 7 and 9. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because the Lord's oath that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. Did you hear that? Because of the oath. So the king took Armani and Mephibosheth, the two sons of Rizpah and the daughter of Ai, whom she bore to Saul, and the five sons of Michal, the daughter of Saul, whom she brought up to Adrael for the son of Berzei, the, the Mehushite. And he delivered them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hung them on the hill before the Lord. So they fell all seven together and were put to death in the days of harvest in the first days, in the beginning of the barley harvest. The Gibeonites knew that God respected their covenant. Revenge was not the reason covenant was. Do you understand that? Revenge is not destructive. Or revenge is destructive. Restitution is constructive. Revenge is destructive, but restitution is constructive. Did you get that? Revenge is destructive, but restitution is constructive. There's a big difference between revenge and 
restitution. <laughs> and, you know, the, the, the idea of when we see things go wrong today and we say, well, somebody should do something about that. They want revenge. We don't want revenge, beloved. We need restitution. Restitution is costly and only through God can it be provided. But as we pray and say, Lord, help us, give us restitution, he will answer. This character of King Saul, this historical figure. Now, I think it's probably fair to say that most of us, when we think of King Saul, we think of the bad guy foil to King David. But an entire book of the Bible is also dedicated to mostly his reign. Of course, that's 1 Samuel. So I'm really excited to jump into it today and see what we can learn about Saul. In 2 Samuel chapter 21, we read a pretty disturbing account, and it's disturbing for a few different reasons. Uh, but basically, there is a famine that has come in Israel, and it turns out it's because Saul, King Saul, did not honor the covenant that Joshua had struck with the people of Gibeon. So today, you and I are going to jump into ancient Gibeon, take a look at its history and some of the archaeology surrounding it. Now, don't get confused because there's actually Actually, two cities mentioned in this chapter that sound very similar, Gibeon and Gibeah. We are taking a look at Gibeon today, where the Gibeonites were from. Take a look. The city of Gibeon appears on the pages of the Bible during the conquest of Canaan. In Joshua 9, the city saw the proverbial writing on the wall. Large fortified cities had fallen to the Israelites, and Gibeon knew they would too. The other cities of Canaan made alliances and fought Israel, but Gibeon took a different tact. They pretended to be from a distant land and struck a peace treaty with Joshua. The Israelites honored this word of peace even after the deception was discovered. Joshua 10 is the scene of this treaty's test. A coalition of Canaanite kings surrounded Gibeon to claim it for themselves, and this became the scene of Joshua's famous long day when he commanded the sun to stand still. Disagreements abound as to whether this was a miracle of the sun actually standing still or whether it should be viewed as a miracle cosmic sign that would have struck terror into the hearts of Israel's enemies. Regardless, Gibeon is at the center of some very interesting biblical history. And the Bible notes that its Canaanite occupants lived peaceably among Israel and became woodcutters and water carriers for the tabernacle of God. Gibeon reappears in the Bible with another reference to water during King David's reign. A civil war had broken out between David and the house of Saul. Their militaries met at the Pool of Gibeon, which must have been quite formidable in order to be a place of meeting and worthy of biblical mention. This pool even receives a much later mention in the Bible during the days of the prophet Jeremiah. David's army commander, Joab, again led his military to Gibeon, this time meeting at the Great Rock of Gibeon, where Joab killed another threat to the throne and to his job. The Bible reveals that the tabernacle was kept in Gibeon for some time during the life of David. Perhaps it was moved here after the destruction of Shiloh by the Philistines. 
It's told that although David brought the Ark to Jerusalem, the tent tabernacle and its bronze altar remained set up at the high place of Gibeon. That's why Solomon brought the assembly of Israel to Gibeon and sacrificed there. As a result, God spoke to him in a dream and Solomon received wisdom and the capacity to lead. In modern times, Gibeon has been identified thanks to excavations that unearthed jar handles stamped with the Hebrew name Gibeon. Also revealed was a massive rock-cut water installation dating to the time of the judges of Israel and in use until the Babylonian destruction of the 6th century BC. It's to this pool that the Bible must be referring to. While more excavations may reveal a sanctuary site or the site of the Great Rock, such things have not yet been found, leading some scholars to guess that the sanctuary was actually on a high place just two kilometers south of the city proper, still allowing the Gibeonites to be woodcutters and water carriers for the sanctuary. So it was the Gibeonites then, the people from the city of Gibeon, who in 2 Samuel chapter 21 demand capital punishment on some of Saul's family as retribution for Saul's indiscriminate killing of the Gibeonites while he was alive. Now, um, these executions took place in Saul's hometown of Gibeah, and Gibeah was famous in its own right for becoming during the time period of the judges as bad as Sodom and Gomorrah was. You can read about that in the last three chapters of Judges. But anyway, this story is wrapped up nicely after David has mercy on the family of Saul after he witnesses the loving actions of one of the mothers and he ends up giving the all of the family a royal burial. Very, so, very interesting. Yeah. Excellent stuff. Uh, okay, go ahead, Ryan. All right, well, I know that our reading today is 2 Samuel 20 to 22, but I'm actually going to be continuing on with my study from yesterday. And on that program, I talked about gates and how important they were in the ancient Eastern world. Not only were they important for protection from enemies, but they were culturally important too. Well, to carry on with this theme, today I'm going to be studying the ancient lock and key. And if you were a possessor of a key to any such locks, then you were looked upon as somebody with power and authority. And the key, even today, remains a symbol of honor. So let's check it out. In our modern age, being awarded the key to the city is a symbol of great honor and respect. Although this key is only ornamental and non-functional, in medieval times, this was an actual key which opened the actual gates of the city. Because the possessor of such a key could come and go as he pleased, he was seen as someone of honor, trust, and power. Yet this concept is far more ancient in origin than even the medieval era. In fact, it might be as old as the lock itself. Perhaps the earliest locks were those of the ancient East, which used a technique of falling pins. This lock, common to Egypt and Israel, consisted of a wooden slide drawn into its place by a string, and fastened there by teeth or catches. The lock itself is a long hollow piece of wood fixed in the door which slides back and forth. A hole is made for it in the doorpost, and when it is pushed into this hole, small bolts of iron wire fall into holes which are made for them in the top of the lock. The lock is placed on the inside of the door, and a hole is made in the door near the lock, through which the hand can be passed and the key inserted. This helps to explain the Song of Solomon chapter 5 verse 4, where it says, 
my beloved put in his hand by the hole of the door. The keys to these locks were usually made of wood, although in Egypt some have been found of iron and bronze. The ordinary wooden key is from 6 inches to 2 feet long, often having a handle of brass or silver ornamented with filigree work. At the end there are wire pins which are designed to loosen the fastenings of the lock. Due to their large size, these ancient keys were carried upon the shoulder. And since possession of such keys was taken as evidence of property or trust, the key became an emblem of wealth and authority. This concept is very evident throughout the Bible. For example, in Isaiah 22:22, God says of Eliakim, the key of the house of David I will lay upon his shoulder. Not only is this figuratively expressing the authority given to Eliakim, but as treasurer, he quite literally bore upon his shoulder the key to the royal chambers, which meant he had the authority to decide who was and who was not allowed to enter to see the king. Similarly, Jesus uses the word keys figuratively as a sign of authority in Matthew 16:19, when he declares to the apostle Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Truly, this concept is very, very ancient, and to this day, the key remains an emblem of power, honor, and authority. So this whole idea of being awarded the key to the city today is actually a very ancient concept. And as we saw in the segment, the key both figuratively and literally represented power and authority. And we see this throughout the Bible. So the next time you're reading about these things, you could say that you now have the key to understand. <laughs> Very good, Brian. That's excellent. The key. <laughs> All right, Janice, what do you got going? Well, I thought I would talk about covenants and oaths. And we see a very, well, a, a grim reminder of the oath that Israel had with the Gibeonites here and the one that Saul willfully went against it, the, the scripture says, in his zeal uh, for the children of Israel and Judah. So uh, Saul thought he was doing what he should be doing, but he was breaking a very ancient covenant that God knew was very important. And so he brings about this famine. David, uh, God knows David's heart. David be, uh, inquires of God, what is going on? What has happened? And he finds out about this broken covenant, this broken oath, and he goes very humbly, David does, he goes very humbly to the Gibeonites to ask, um, you know, what, what shall I do for you? Well, I, I look at our culture today, and I can't speak globally, I can only see the culture in which I live in, and some of the things that I see going on in the media and social media and just uh, in general in, in the population, that it seems less popular in our culture of today, um, in making promises, in keeping covenants. <clears throat> and what do I mean by that? I think our words have become very cheap in many ways. We can say a lot, but there's not a lot of weight to them. And I think that's very, very unfortunate for humanity in general, but especially for those who have committed their lives to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. What we say and how we respond is very, very important. We become the voice, the hands and the feet of God. We become his ambassadors here on earth. And we need to be representing the Lord Jesus Christ to our society around us. 
So whatever you believe is what you believe, but that doesn't change the fact that God is God and he sees and he knows, he knows you, he knows your heart, he knows your intentions. And we need to come to God with that understanding and get in line with him and not try to make excuses for the way we want to live and the way we see things. David showed this humble attitude. You know, he could have said, well, that was something that Saul did and, you know, he made a mistake and, you know, that that's tragic and, and I'm going to take a look at this covenant and, and I'm not going to hurt any of the Gibeonites anymore, but he didn't. He went to make it right. He went in humbleness. And this is the way we need to live our lives, not to prove our point all the time. But if we can't, you know, it's that old saying, Rod, we need to practice what we preach. It's very easy for me to tell you how to live your life or how to you should be responding to things. Or you and Ryan, Corey, uh, Corey you, you know, the way that you respond to people. and do, It's easy for me to give you direction, but unless I can do that in my own life, then I need to take a step back and make sure that my life is right before God and that the things that I say and do. And I've got a lot of work. I'm, I am a work in progress, Rod. I think all of us do. I, you know, it's, it's really interesting because there's revivals going on and people are doing these things and all of that. But, but at, the, at the bottom of it, what is it that they, has changed their life? And, has their life changed? And that's the thing, because the presence of God, when you really meet with God and you really seek after him and, and, and come in prayer and, and read his word with the authority of God's word, it changes. It begins to change who you are from the inside, and then and then it begins to come on the outside. And it doesn't just happen. I. It would be so wonderful, wouldn't wouldn't it, if you just changed like that overnight? Oh, it'd be great, wouldn't it? I think it'd be awesome. But it takes time. This is that relationship that we talk about all the time. That it's not a religion of rules and regulations. Although we do choose to follow God's commands, because Jesus even said, "My disciples know my word; they abide in my word." So knowing the Bible knowing is key. Knowing the Bible is key. Reading and the Bible daily. Not just knowing it. Not just knowing it. I've said this before. I can read a book about gardening or I can read a recipe book, but that doesn't make me a cook or a good gardener unless I start to take the things that I'm learning and and begin to apply. It's the same thing with the Bible. It's true. And and I think that's important to remember is that whatever happens, there's, there's things that take place and you see them, but then there's things that take place when you read the word of God and you know him. That's the difference between seeing God work and knowing God has worked. You know, Bible Discovery TV is a website where you can watch the program whenever you want at whatever time, but it's also a place where you have new programs. One of them is Beyond the Call, and it's there. Beyond the Call is testimonies about Jesus Christ from unique people, different people around here and around the world. And I want to encourage you to go there and watch it, Beyond the Call. Right now we need to pray, and let's pray this way. Lord, please give me wisdom to know how to treat others. 
and how to make restitution. Help me today, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.